Open up in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in verses uh, 1 through 30 this morning. And as you're turning there and finding the passage, I've shared with you before I went to college downtown Chicago, lived around the city of Chicago most of, most of my young life. Love the city of Chicago. It's a beautiful, just awesome city. Uh, went to Moody Bible Institute. Met my wife there. She wasn't my wife at the time, but <laughs> came later. Um, so Moody Bible Institute is, is right on the northern kind of part of what would be considered downtown Chicago, like, like the center heart of the city. We're, we're right there on the cusp. We could get to what I would consider like, like the very center of Chicago, maybe 20, 30 minute walk we could get there. By bus or taxi, maybe it would take an hour and a half. So it was somewhere in there. You'll get it later. Don't worry. But I loved going around Chicago with my friends. We would just walk all over. or I I was a rollerblader. We'd go on rollerblades all over the city of Chicago. It was just a great way to see the city and explore and meet people. There were beaches on one side. You've got the financial district. Um, it's just a beautiful way to go around the city. And so we would go all over, and sometimes you get really, really lost. There's big buildings all over the place. And so you couldn't always tell where you were. But there were two main buildings. There still are. There's, there's the John Hancock building, uh, and then what was then the Sears Tower, what's now called the Willis Tower, but we don't speak of such things. Um, you can't, it's my whole life it was the Sears Tower. You can't change it. But anyway, if you could find one of those two buildings, and especially if you could see them both, and they're huge, then you kind of know exactly where you are in the city. Sears Tower is right downtown, Willis Tower, right downtown, uh, and then Hancock Building was actually not too far from Moody Bible Institute. It's more on the north side on Michigan Avenue down by the beach. And so as long as we saw one of those, we knew exactly where we were. So what you would do is that if you were lost, you just kind of start walking in the general direction you thought you should go in, and you just keep on looking up to find one of these landmarks. And when you got one of them in view, you knew exactly where you were and where you had to go. Today, we're going to be talking about living with the cross in view. How do we live in such a way that we get our bearings in life, both this life and eternal life, by keeping the cross in view? And I kind of have a double meaning with this title, because as we come to this passage in Matthew, the cross is very much in view. We are at the beginning of the passage, a few days away from the cross. By the end of the passage, we will be hours away from the cross. And to Jesus, just as it has been his whole earthly life, but especially now as he's meeting with his disciples in these final moments, the cross is very much in view. And I think we're to live this way with the cross in view. And in this chapter, at the very beginning, there's three interactions with groups of people that show us or teach us something about what it means to live with the cross in view. And then in verses 17 through 30, at the latter part of the passage, we're going to talk about Jesus and his disciples share the Last Supper. And it is a meal that is absolutely focused on keeping the cross in view at all times. So let's look at verses 1 through 16. 
And I've called this section Jesus First. Living with the cross in view means putting Christ first in all things in our lives. I want to set the scene. It's a few days before Jesus will be arrested. He'll be tried overnight, which was illegal according to Jewish law. He would be put on the cross the next day. So so we're a few days away from that circumstance. Jesus is instructing his disciples to prepare for this Passover meal. And all of this is taking place in between that time of preparation, at least these first things we're going to look at. The first thing we look at in verses 1 through 5 is is kind of two quick scenes. One is Jesus with his disciples, and then it's the religious leaders, and, and they're trying to figure out what to do and how to make this all work out the way they want. And I love the way that Matthew puts these back to back. Because I want you to see the contrast between these two scenes. Let me read verses 1 through 5. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him, But not during the festival, they said, or there may be a riot among the people. Jesus tells his disciples, again, he's done this numerous times. Guys, I'm going to the cross. In just a few days, I'm going to the cross. He doesn't hold a conference with them. What do you guys think? You know, kind of worried about this. Maybe we should vote on this. There's none of that. Is Jesus the Son of God, knowing past, present, and future, who says, I know this is what's going to happen. I think we could go to other parts of Matthew and other parts of Scripture to even go a, a step further. Is Jesus saying, I choose for this to happen. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came to go to the cross to pay the price for our sins. If I put it another way, it's that Jesus sovereignly chose the cross. Sovereignly, that means in all authority and all power. I've called this series, The King Has Come. Jesus is the king, in case that hasn't been clear throughout the series. He's the king. Not just the king of Israel. Not just the king of this world. He's the king of heaven and earth and all eternity. He is the sovereign king with absolute authority. And here the sovereign king is saying, I'm going to the cross. I choose it. It's been planned. That's what's going to happen. But notice the religious leaders. They're scheming to arrest him secretly and kill him. But in verse 5, but not during the festival or there might be a riot. Is this any sovereignty here? This is squirming. It's not sovereignty. They don't have control. They're afraid. They're trying to figure out how to make their plan come to pass, but they're afraid of how people will respond to it. It's the exact opposite of Jesus saying, I'm going to the cross. It's these guys going, how do we make this happen for us? How do we get what we want? And they're scheming. The religious leaders are making a choice to put Jesus on trial and hang him on a cross. And I love the juxtaposition here 
Jesus, the son of God, is making a sovereign declaration. I am going to the cross. These men are acting out of their own free will and saying, how do we get what we want? And people all the time want to ask, well, is God sovereign or does man have free will? And here we see both in the fact that God's sovereign plan will happen, period. Humanity is responsible for our own decisions, period. We want to argue all the time how those two overlap and how they go together. But what is absolutely not up for argument is God is sovereign. We have responsibilities and will be held responsible for them. But I do think it's important here to understand. Jesus had the plan to go to the cross before the world was ever created. He knew. He didn't show up in Israel and go, man, this just, these religious leaders are not really getting it. This isn't really working out. I think I'm just going to have to go to the cross. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't plan C. The cross was always plan A. He chose sovereignly to go to the cross. Jesus is first in sovereignty. But the other thing he needs to be first in our life is in worship. If we look at this next passage here, we see a question of priorities. Verses 6 through 13 talks about this woman that brings this expensive perfume and anoints Jesus. Let's read this. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. And the disciple, or when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price, and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This woman makes a choice to give something of tremendous value. Scholars estimate that this perfume was probably worth about a whole year's wages. So you you can take whatever you and your household makes in a year and imagine just giving that up to Jesus. Now, this would have been something that probably would have been a family heirloom. It could have been kept to, to give to a relative or maybe even for herself at her own funeral, her, her own burial to prepare the body for burial. It could have been something she could have sold to get some money. This was worth a lot. And she made a choice to pour it over Jesus's head in honor and worship of him. It is an absolute act of putting Jesus first and worshiping him. And verses 8 and 9 say the disciples. Now remember, these are the guys that have hung out with Jesus for three years, followed him around, seen the miracles, watched everything that he's done, listened to his teachings, and they're mad about this. They're mad that someone is worshiping Jesus. Think of how ludicrous that is. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us exactly who. In the Gospel of John, we are told that it was mostly Judas Iscariot, the one who we'll look at in a moment, will betray Jesus. And their thinking is, you could have sold the perfume. Instead of pouring it on Jesus' head, could have just donated it to Jesus and the disciples, and then we could have sold it and gotten money and used that to help so many people. 
Wouldn't that have been better? Using it in an act of worship to Jesus, what they're saying, is a waste. A while ago, and I've shared this story before, it was a couple years ago, my wife came to me and she shared something that she had read online. Uh, An author that she followed was talking about her husband, who's a, a pastor in their church, and they made a decision on Easter morning to cancel their worship services and instead to go out and serve the poor. And so many people, wow, that's just beautiful. What a beautiful thing to do. What an absolute, amazing, godly Christian thing to do. And I heard that and I thought, you're missing the point. Easter is about Jesus first. And what those poor people need is Jesus first. Without the cross and the resurrection, they are still lost in their sins, and we are still lost in our sins. We need Jesus first. You might think, oh, pastor, you're saying we we shouldn't help the poor? We shouldn't care about the poor? That instead we should focus on Jesus first and not worship or not help the poor in any way, shape, or form? Is that what Jesus is saying? To some degree, actually, yes, that is what Jesus is saying. He is saying there is a higher priority of focusing on him and worshiping him than even helping the poor. Now, what do we mean by worship? Think for a second, because this helps. Some of you are kind of squirming. I can see it. You're like, "Mm, I don't know, pastor. And and I I want you to look at the text because I want to make sure you're not arguing with me like I'm a fallible human. I I mess up. Just ask my wife. But, But Jesus isn't. And so you're free to disagree with me. You're not free to disagree with Jesus Christ. What do we mean by worship? You know, somebody asked me once, why do we call this the worship service? Is this the only time that we worship? God forbid, no. This is the time we get to come together and worship. We should be worshiping all the time. Well, is worship just singing? Absolutely not. Sometimes it's singing. Sometimes it's teaching or praying or giving or being a parent or going to work and serving Christ at work or going out on the street corners and preaching or going and helping the poor. Even that is worship. When we put Christ first, I always believe we will love others more, including the poor. But when we put others first... We neglect Jesus Christ, and at some point, our motivation for serving others will suffer. And they will hurt as well. Jesus says this quote, The poor you will always have with you. And it sounds very callous and harsh, but he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 11. But I want to read the full quote, because this is kind of how rabbis would quote from the Old Testament. They would quote a snippet. And the Jewish people, especially the first five books of the law, they were brought up and memorized these books word for word. Jewish children. So all they had to do was mention a little bit and the rest of it would pop into their heads. So listen to the whole part here of Deuteronomy 15, 11. There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. That changes it a little bit, doesn't it? Jesus is not saying ignore the poor. What he's saying is that when you worship me first, then you will actually love and serve the poor appropriately 
It's a question of priority. When we live with the cross in view, we put Jesus first. And I truly believe we will love others far more by putting Jesus first than if we put them above Christ. Interesting side note. That church that canceled services Easter morning is no longer a church. That woman's no longer married to that man. I don't even believe she claims to be a Christian anymore. How does that happen? They fail to put Jesus first. See, when we put anything, even good things, in the place of Jesus, in the highest priority of our lives, the Bible has a word for that. Do you know what it's called? Idolatry. And that is dangerous. And it hurts us, it hurts the gospel, and it even hurts the people that we are serving. We need to live with the cross in view, which means having an eternal perspective. The goal of the cross is not just to make people's next couple hours better. It's not even to make their life here on earth better, contrary to many Christian teachers. The goal of the cross is that we are made for eternity and as sinners we are lost and condemned to hell and we need saved. Imagine a line of people and they're lined up and at the end of that line is a cliff. And one by one they're stepping off it. And godly Christians step up and say, I'm going to love them. So we bring them water as they're in line and we bring them food as they're in line and we give them counseling as they're in line to make them feel better about the heat of the day that they have to walk through. And as the hours go by, each one of those people that we talk to still steps off the cliff. Have we really helped anybody? But now imagine we walk up to them with a a bottle of water and we say, hey, you don't have to be in this line anymore. Let me tell you about where it's ending. Let me tell you what's happening at the end of this line. And let me tell you about my Savior that can save you from this death. Now you're serving not just the poor, but anyone you can talk to. We must put Jesus first in our worship, in our lives, in every priority of everything in our lives as Christians. Jesus must be first. And then we're given a very poignant example, disastrous example of someone who didn't put Jesus first. Probably one of the most famous people in all of scripture is Judas. A cautionary tale. Look at verses 14 to 16, then one of the 12. Just think about that. One of the 12. Jesus' innermost circle spent the most time with him, knew him better than any of the crowds, than one of the twelve. The one called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Do you remember the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they said, we're not going to do this during the festival. Passover festival that's coming up. They ended up arresting Jesus during the festival. What made the difference? You just read it. Judas. When Judas went to them, they now had something to hang their case on. Someone was willing 
to betray him. Judas changed their timeline. Not Jesus' timeline, but their timeline. We don't know Judas's ultimate reasons for betraying Jesus. I think it's important when we read scripture to try to show grace to people. I do think he's one of the harder people to show grace to. I believe that ultimately Judas came to the conclusion Jesus was not who he expected him to be. He thought Jesus was going to change the world for the better, which is true. He thought Jesus was going to change his life for the better, which is true. But Jesus wasn't doing it the way that Judas expected. Sometimes I wonder if maybe Judas thought that this would force Jesus to act. Maybe when the religious leaders rise up against Jesus, Jesus will do a miracle and knock them all down and overthrow the world. I don't know. What I do know is that Judas had his own priorities of who Jesus should be. They weren't the priorities of Jesus. His estimation of the worth of Jesus was way off. How much was Judas paid for his betrayal? 30 pieces of silver. Do you know that the Old Testament, that that actually comes straight out of the Old Testament. 30 pieces of silver was the price, if, if I owned a bull and you had some slaves, and on accident, my bull happened to kill one of your slaves. And it wasn't anybody's fault. It was just unfortunate accident. I would have to pay you 30 pieces of silver. It was considered a meaningless sum of money. An unfortunate accident to a very unfortunate person. Not really all that important. That's what I had to pay. And Judas says, what are you willing to pay me to betray my rabbi? And they say, 30 pieces of silver, and he goes, done. That's about what Jesus was worth to Judas. Because I think that Judas thought that Jesus was an unfortunate person in an unfortunate circumstance, and Judas was done with him. Judas is a warning sign to all of us of the ultimate end of misplaced priorities. When we fail to put Jesus first, it distorts and warps our perception of our lives, of the gospel, of the word of God, and of our world. Living with the cross in view means putting Christ first, first in trusting him, first in worshiping him, changing our priorities, and first in obeying him, changing our actions. So now with this idea of Christ first in the view of the cross, let's look at the Last Supper, a meal of eternal significance. Jesus instructs his disciples to prepare for the Passover. Let's look at verses 17 to 25. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad. 
and began to say one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, one, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. The Passover was a festival to remember how God had rescued his people in the Old Testament. And it's so important to understand the meaning behind it because Jesus is going to take that meaning and apply it in a new way to himself and the cross and the resurrection. During the time in the Old Testament, when the Israelites were, were they went into Egypt to protect themselves because there was a famine and they were there for a long time and they'd become enslaved. And, and they prospered in a sense. They grew numerous in numbers. But the Egyptians were more and more harsh to them. And you may know the story of Moses. God comes to Moses and he says, I'm going to lead my people out of Egypt. And Moses says, Pharaoh will never let them go. The king of Egypt, he'll never let them go. And so there are a series of judgments that God gives on the Egyptians. You know them as the plagues. And the last one was the worst. See, in the Egyptian mindset, the Pharaoh was basically a god. And, and his role, his position would go to his firstborn son, who was like the son of a god. All of the land went to the firstborn son. The, the cornerstone of Egyptian society and so many other societies of this time revolved around the firstborn son. And Jesus, or God tells them, I'm going to kill the firstborn son. And God instructs the Israelites. He says, I'm bringing judgment, but here's what you need to do. Take a lamb, sacrifice it. And take some blood of that sacrifice and put them over your doorposts. Cover your door, your house, symbolically, with blood. And then when the angel of the Lord that's bringing judgment comes over the Egyptians. He's going to bring judgment on some, but others will be covered by the blood of a sacrifice. And the angel of the Lord will pass them over and not bring judgment on that house. Think of the richness of what this meal means. God saved his people through a sacrifice. And then he called them out to be his people. Jesus knows the cross is in view. He knows why he's going to the cross. He is going to die on the cross as a sacrifice in our place. And as he prepares for this meal and they're sitting at the table, these men that knew him better than anybody else, he tells them, one of you is going to betray me. And they all say, no way. We would never do that, which is... Somewhat ironic because obviously one of them just did. But it's also a little bit ironic because in a few hours, most of them are going to run away from Jesus. They think they're so bold. Matthew, and, and I think in general scripture, it, it's not that Jesus was sitting there and like pointed to Judas. That guy, he's going to betray me. 
I think it was all done very cryptically. Jesus knew. The disciples, I don't think, really caught on. That's why they're all saying, you don't mean me. Definitely not me. Even Judas, he says, not me. And then Jesus says the equivalent of, you know, you said it, not me. Judas already knows what he's done. He's he's sitting there at the table pretending that he hasn't just met with the religious leaders and betrayed his Savior. But again, look at what we see, this picture of Christ's sovereignty and man's free will. Jesus says the Son of Man will go as has been written about him. I will go to the cross. It's been planned long in advance. Then he says, but woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would have been better if he had not been born. God planned the cross. Jesus chose the cross. Judas is absolutely responsible for his choice to betray Jesus. Sovereignty, free will. And Jesus and his disciples share this meal that celebrates, commemorates, and reminds them of God saving his people in the Old Testament. This thing that shaped Israel as a nation and as a people. It was their identity. We are people called out by God, saved from the Egyptians. And what's so amazing is that this event that was God calling his people into relationship with himself, but also calling them into a relationship with each other. We call it communion because it's our communion with God, but it's also our communion with each other. And at that meal that was the celebration of their identity and their unity, one was sitting there that had already betrayed Jesus. What incredible sadness. Let's look a bit more at this important meal, verses 26 through 30. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day. When I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus takes this Passover meal. This Passover meal that had been celebrated for hundreds of years, multiple generations. By the time of Jesus, it it was a very rote script that they would read. It was the same Every single year, the same things were eaten in the same order and the same things were said each and every time. And Jesus here is taking the part of the head of the household. He is overseeing the meal. He is the one making the pronouncements and handing out the food at the appropriate times. And then he says this. He breaks the bread. They would have been used to that part of the meal all the time. And then he says, this is my body. And their jaws would have hit the floor. Whoa, Jesus, that's not in the script. Nobody's ever said that, but that was never a part of the Passover meal. Jesus, go back. I think you messed that part up. This is my body. No, Jesus, I thought we were talking about God delivering the Israelites from the Old Testament and and Moses and all that. And Jesus says, no, no, this is about me now. 
You need to understand that God saved you there by giving you a lamb and you put blood on your doorpost. He's like, but now you're going to be saved by the son of God going to the cross. This is about me. This is my body. This is my blood. We're no longer talking about some Old Testament event of the Exodus. We're we're no longer talking about some lamb that was killed in an ancient event. Jesus says, what you're doing from now on as you remember these things will point you to the cross. You will live in view of the cross. D.A. Carson makes a really interesting point here. He says, Jesus bids us commemorate not his birth, nor his life, nor his miracles, but his death. Don't get me wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with Christmas. I think it's good to celebrate the birth of Jesus. But I do think it's very important that we stop and we say, of all the things Jesus specifically instituted that we remember that he did, of all the most important things that he said, now here's some things I want you to do to remind yourself constantly of something really important. What did he want us to remember? He died in our place. He's the sacrifice. That's what he wants us to remember. A lot of people throughout the ages have want to argued over what does he mean? This is my body. This is my blood. What is that? Some Catholic Church in general takes it in their tradition of, of it, it becomes the body and blood. Spiritually, it transitions into or transforms into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. Some take it in more of a, a spiritual way not the actual body and blood, but you're still kind of taking or consuming some aspect spiritually of who Jesus is. We always present it here at the church. It is a symbol, remembering who Jesus is. And I really do think that makes the most sense. Because if you think about it, the Passover, they were not eating the lamb and saying, this is the very lamb that our ancestors ate in Egypt. They didn't think that way. It was to remember what their ancestors went through. Mark and Luke record, as well as Paul in 1 Corinthians, Jesus using the phrase, do this in remembrance of me. This was a meal to remember, to remind ourselves, to refocus ourselves Who is Jesus? What has he done for us? God saves his people and he calls them to live in relationship with him. He takes them out of Egypt and into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness, he meets with them on a mountain and he gives them his law, his covenant. A covenant is a a legal declaration of an obligation of relationship between two parties. Covenant. And he gives them his covenant. And the way they would seal or sign a covenant in that time was not with a ballpoint pen. It was with the sacrifice of an animal. And the idea was basically saying, if I break this covenant, may what happened to the animal happen to me. A covenant. Jesus says, this is a new covenant in his blood. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. Remember how the Jewish mind worked? They had so much of this memorized, you just had to quote a little bit, and they would have gone, wow, Jeremiah said something about that. 
I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. They will be, or I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. A new covenant. A new covenant, a new relationship between God and us where we are not changed by external rules that we have to live up to, but where God will change us from the inside out. He will change our heart. A new covenant where we will be forgiven of our sins, cleansed from our sins. The sins will be wiped away. And the Old Testament has built a long pattern of the way that those sins will be forgiven is they will be put on a sacrifice and the sacrifice will be killed in our place. And Jesus is saying, this is now my body, my blood. Son of God, the sovereign king of heaven and earth is saying to each one of us, I will be your sacrifice. I will take your place. And you will have a new relationship with God because of what Jesus did. Not because of what we do for him, but because of what he did for us. Not because we fix ourselves up, because we can't, but because he will fix us, save us, change us. And I love verse 29. He says, I will not celebrate this again. I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. As the cross is literally in view, he's right there in Jerusalem. He knows he's about to die. He looks down through the course of the rest of human history and he says, the day is coming when you will be with me in my Father's kingdom, perfect and forever. And guess what we'll do? We will share a meal. A meal that reminds us of who we were and the fact that we are saved by Jesus Christ. And that word communion will take on a whole new meaning. Not only do we have fellowship with God and with each other in this life now, but one day we will join perfected in heaven and we will sit in perfect communion with God and perfect communion with each other. And we will all know it's because of Jesus. We need to live with the cross in view. Every day to look at the cross and say, that should have been me, but he took my place. Every day to look at the cross and say, there but for the grace of God is where I deserve to be, but he took my place. His body, his blood. And then to say, I have a new covenant, a new relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I am defined by the cross. I'm going to live now with the cross in view, trusting in Jesus, serving Jesus, obeying Jesus. And I'm going to take every opportunity to grab whoever I can and say, let me point you to the cross of Jesus Christ. And if that takes handing out a water bottle to do it, go for it. 
that takes getting somebody upset at you because they don't want to hear it, go for it. Love them that much. No matter what. And if that takes each and every one of us to lay down our lives and to say, I am not in control, I am a wicked, awful sinner, and I'm destined for hell, but the Son of God took my place. If that takes us falling on our face before the cross of Jesus Christ, go for it. You're not losing anything. And you've just gained the whole world. Do we put Jesus first in all things? Are we focused on who he is and his sacrifice for us? Are we trusting him and living as his people to constantly invite others to say, let's look at the cross together? You know, if you want people to take notice of something, you can try to go to them and explain it to them. You can try to tell them all about it. But I guarantee you the best way to get someone else to take notice of Jesus Christ is for you to have your gaze so fixated on him that when they look at you, they go, what are you looking at? And you just say, there's my Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I pray as people struggling in this world with all the difficulties that entails, as people struggling with our own sin and all the difficulty that that entails, as people struggling with doubts, I pray that you would help us to live in view of the cross. Clear away those things that we have put up in the place of Jesus, thinking they will give us comfort and guidance. And may we instead live in the clear view of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I do pray, Father, if there's anyone here who has not accepted your Son as their Savior, may they hear the words, the price has been paid. His body, His blood, your very Son chose to come and die in our place. May today be the day that they say yes to Jesus and to trust in his cross and to be saved for all eternity. And Father, for those that that have trusted in Christ, may we live that in our lives. It's so easy to come on Sundays and, and say, oh, I'm all about Jesus, I'm all about the cross, and then Monday comes and we forget so quickly. Your sovereignty has never changed. Your love for us doesn't change from Sunday to Monday. May our trust of you and our worship of you never change from Sunday to Monday. May we live in view of the cross. In your name we pray. Amen.